Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and today on the podcast, it's a treat to bring you another conversation with Dr. Thomas J. Ord for his third appearance on the show, and we are talking all about life after death. And this comes off the back of the last episode in which we talked a little bit about heaven. I unpacked some of what I think is going on in at least some interpretations of the New Testament vision for what is meant by the idea of heaven. And so we dive even further into that conversation and unpack it and pick it apart and re-examine it in this convo that I had with with Tom. Uh, so you'll find some curious, perhaps unexpected things in this conversation. We cover all sorts of wild kind of ground. It's great convo. And it's a really important one to have, honestly, to be able to hold the ambiguity and the speculative nature of these conversations whilst also saying, well, is there anything that we can say about this uh, with any plausibility uh, or, or feasibility. So that's the kind of conversation we have here. I think you'll uh, really enjoy it. And uh, in the meantime, and just before we jump into that, as always, you can uh, get in touch with me. You can email me at michael at intheshift.com. You can go to the website, intheshift.com, or you can find me on the on the Facebooks or the Insta webs or the Twitter verse, whatever it is that you do, and however it is that you connect with people. Uh, find me there, send me a story a question, an idea, a thought, something you found helpful or curious about the podcast as you're listening along. I'd love to hear from you. And of course, you can financially support the podcast through Patreon. And so uh, while you think about that and think about some fascinating things to send to me to say hi so that I know that I'm not just yelling into the void, here is the conversation with Dr. Thomas J. Ord. This is episode 47 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Today on the podcast, it's my pleasure to have back Thomas J. Ord. Tom is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar. He directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary, as well as being the director of the Center for Open and Relational Theology and a three-time appearer on the In The Shift podcast. Thanks for coming back on the on the show, Tom. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. I wanted the hat trick, so I had to come for the third time. That's right. <laughs> uh, I think I'm right in saying that you have a book coming out next month. Is that Yes, thanks for mentioning it. It's uh, called Open and Relational Theology, An Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. And as the the title suggests, it it introduces the basic ideas of open relational theology, but uh, written at a level that my mother can understand. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good. Well, we look forward to to seeing that come out. Um, And I look forward to recommending it to people. Uh, Thanks. Today, we're going to talk about an idea or a set of ideas around the topic of life after death. And I, and I know it's something that you have thought about and, and written a little bit about. Uh, and, and it's the direction of thinking that I find important, but also quite challenging. Uh, because on one level, it's, it's speculative, necessarily speculative, right? We are, as far as I can tell, uh, alive. And uh, on this side, and, and so is everybody that we know. And, uh, and so that, that means as we have these conversations about what comes after death, and if there is anything that comes after death. I think we do find ourselves in this realm of how do we actually say anything with any kind of plausibility or, or confidence. So that's one reason why it's both challenging, but then it's also a really important question, I think, because it speaks to one of the consistent and per- pervasive questions of, of our human experience. 
you know, is this the end or is this, or is there more? What does it mean to be human? Is there something in me that is more than just a creature who will live and die and, and be the dust and, and that's it? Is there, and especially perhaps for those who experience great suffering in this life, I think um, the question of is there actually a hope for some kind of more peaceful or whole future, is that is that possible? So while it's challenging, I also think it's really important. Uh, and so that's what I want to dive into with you today. Um, Excellent. So perhaps we can start with how you see uh, perhaps the Christian scriptures speaking to this issue of, of life after death um, as, as one of our conversation partners in this in this conversation. Uh, and then and then we can move forward also to perhaps talk about the plausibility of this, how we actually understand it, given what we now know of reality and humanness in the universe and so on. So can we start there yeah. and, then, and then see how we proceed? Yeah, that sounds like a great place to start. Although I'd actually like to start even a little bit wider. Sure. Because, you know, belief in life after death isn't just a Christian notion. Mm. It isn't just a theistic notion even. Um, uh, you can be, uh, you know, you can believe, for instance, in reincarnation and not think there's any necessarily any gods. Mm. You could be a, a Greek philosopher and reject the idea of God, but think that there's immortality in some way. Mm. Um, and... And so there's lots of options on the table outside the realm of Christianity. And I think that's important to say up front, just so that, you know, as we're thinking through these issues, we don't have to think to ourselves, well, there's just this narrow group of people who believe in the possibility mm. of life after death. In reality, there's been the vast majority of people today and in history have believed in life after death. Now, they all could be wrong, <laughs> but, but I just want to, 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 to uh, say that it's much wider than yeah, the Christian yeah, tradition. Um, I think the second place, or second thing I want to say is that as I read scripture, what Christians call the Old and New Testament, I do not think there is a uniform, one-size-fits-all understanding of the afterlife. I think the uh, biblical writers have been influenced by at least a half a dozen, probably more like 10 or 12 different other cultures in how they talk about life after death. Um, and there's real change within the Bible itself. Mm. So the vast majority of the Old Testament, um, they do believe in something like life after death, but it's not heaven or hell. It's not reincarnation. It's people go to a pit a dark place. And it doesn't matter if you're good, bad, or ugly, everybody goes there. You die and you go there. So it isn't like, um, you know, go to judgment and God decides, you know, you've been a good girl and you get to go to heaven mm -hmm. for eternity. You just die. And what you're hoping for, if you read the Old Testament, you're hoping that you have lots of kids and those kids will further your name and, and basically what today we would call your genetic lineage. Right. They didn't call it that then. So, um, you know, a lot of people are shocked when they, re they realize that the Old Testament doesn't have what we today think of a traditional view of heaven and hell. So that's the language of, of Sheol, I think, is the word often used right. Right, in, in, in the Old yes. Testament. The grave yes. or the pit. Um, yes. There are a few instances in which people are said to be brought right into God's arms or Abraham's bosom or something like that. But the vast majority of people, again, good or bad, just go to the pit, mm. and that's the end of them. Or I mean, they they have some kind of awareness, but it's, we're not sure what that looks like. Right. But that's the end of their you know earthly existence. Mm -hmm. 
Then you come to the New Testament, and again, you've got a variety of ideas on the table. One of them is Hades, which is uh, you know the Greek understanding of something like going to the darkness after you die, and you know there's all kinds of stories about riding in the boat and uh, paying the the person to get you across the river to mm-hmm. this place of the dead. Um, and the word Hades appears a, a few times in the New Testament. You've also uh, got Gehenna, which is a pretty controversial word. Some people think it's a place outside of Jerusalem in which uh, dead people are burned, but that's a that's a, a, a debate among scholars if that's actually the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, let's see, what's the th- the fourth word? Do you remember what the fourth one is? We got Gehenna, Hades. Is it Tartarus, Tartarus in there somewhere? It's maybe once. Mm-hmm. In Maybe one, it is, in one yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. It, it's also not clear at all from the New Testament what existence is like beyond the grave. Mm. So there's a tradition in Scripture that we are immortal souls, which many people argue come from the Greek uh, notion. There's an idea that we have spiritual bodies. That Paul wants to talk about that at least in one place. Um, so for, I think at least for me in this conversation, Michael, if it's all right, Mm. I'd like to use this phrase. I'd like to talk about subjective experience beyond bodily death. Right. How is that for a phrase? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, more than just that, you know, you, your actions influenced others or you had children and they continue living, but there's some kind of awareness that you continue to have after your body started to decay and your brain is, you know, pushing up flowers or flower food, but you have some kind of subjective experience beyond the death of your body. I think that's the real question. Okay. And does that then tie in for you to themes of resurrection in the New Testament? Or or how do you see that, that language of some kind of subjective experience after death? Uh, and and the language of resurrection that we see, for example, obviously the big example is is the Jesus resurrection. Right. Um, yeah. How how do those ideas tie together for you? Yeah, the word resurrection means a variety of things in the New Testament. It doesn't just mean continued subjective experience or a rising of a body. It can mean all kinds of renewed creation, new hope. But I do think it's the Jesus stories that. Christians put most of their weight into mm. in terms of the possibility that um, they too would be resurrected. Um, but the problem with the Jesus resurrection stories is that, boy, they are so ambiguous. <laughs> they <laughs> don't follow a particular pattern. They don't give us very much information. And you know what the earliest recorded uh, story in the New Testament is? It's not even any of the people at the tomb, the first recollection is St. Paul on the road to Damascus, who has a sees a bright light, gets knocked off his horse, hears a message. In terms of the chronology of what books are written first and mm-hmm. then placed in the Bible, it's that experience that uh, is the first one to be talked about. And here you got a guy who never actually knew Jesus in the flesh. So and wasn't there, you know, when uh, on the on Easter Sunday morning, mm. and um, it's not clear at all that that experience is an experience of an actual body. 
So you got some weird things going right there. Another weird thing you have is that this Jesus that gets resurrected, people just don't seem to know who he is. Mm. You know, women mistake him for a gardener. Two guys walk with him for miles on the uh, road to, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Emmaus. The, Emmaus, there we go. Yeah. They don't know who he is, even though he talks to them about Old Testament stories, etc., until he breaks bread. This is a guy who can be can go th- into a room through locked doors, according to one passage. So, man, the material we have to work with in terms of what it means to be resurrected and Jesus being our primary example, it's really all over the place. Mm. Um, and so that makes our task more difficult, I think. And so we see that we see that variety in all sorts of ways, you know, um, which when you read theological texts trying to wrestle with this, that they're always trying to sort of figure out how that bit goes with that bit. And so Jesus is on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But then Paul says something like, we'll all be asleep. And then uh, and then another place Paul says, no, it'll be all in the flesh of an eye. And you know, <laughs> there, are, there, are, yes. there is not, like you say, not a consistent sense of, oh, A plus B equals C, and this is exactly how it rolls out. And perhaps because like us, they also are alive trying to uh, trying to think through the implications of, of their experiences yes. and of what they believe and what they hope for and, and so on. And so many of them, including Jesus himself, thinks that the end of the age is upon them mm. and he's coming back and it's going to be just really soon. And you get the impression we're talking a couple of years, maybe mm. a decade, and it's been 2000. So um, that's a weird thing to have to worry about or figure out as well. Um, yeah. Can so, I go back to the Jesus resurrection real quick? You can, yeah. And, and lay out some things. Mm. I've come to think in my reading of various things um, that there are kind of four options on the table for thinking about what it is that gets resurrected when God resurrects Jesus. And I say these four options, these are ones that have maybe some biblical support or at least support in the minds of Christians throughout the ages. So the first option is that the resurrected Jesus, the body of that Jesus is practically the same body that went into the tomb, you know, 36 hours earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, the second option is that it's not the same body. It's a really morphed body, uh, maybe closer to a spiritual kind of body that can go through walls. Third option is this resurrected Jesus is more like a mind that has real causal efficacy in the world that can, for instance, meet Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, but not necessarily a body that you can see. Uh, The second one that is a spiritual body is kind of more like, uh, I don't know, are you familiar with Casper the Friendly Ghost? (laughs) 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 The third one is kind of like, uh, I don't know, what it's an invisible mind, but it'd be something like the minds you and I probably have that influence our bodies, but we can't see them, you know, if we open up our brain and look around for them. Mm -hmm. And then that fourth option is kind of uh, more like, in the minds of the people who believe that Jesus resurrected. So there isn't, that resurrection is kind of more of a projection, you might say. Um, And for me, the two of those options that I find most plausible are the middle two. Right. 
it seems pretty clear that it's not the same body that comes out of the tomb. Mm -hmm. If there's a body coming out, it ain't the same one. The fourth one makes it sound like you're just pretty much kind of making this up as a kind of a hope. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the New Testament writers think it's more than just people, you know, wishful thinking. Mm. So I kind of lean toward one of the, the middle two. Do you lean towards one of them in particular? Probably the mind one yeah. or the spiritual mm-hmm. body. Okay. Um, um, yeah. So what are the implications of, that, of all of that then for how we might think about that for ourselves? And, and because this does touch also on very sensitive conversations for people because a lot of our life after death um, language is – has been used primarily as pastoral comfort, right? So mm-hmm. when you do um, either lose someone very dear to you or you're anxious about your own impending um, death for maybe terminally ill or something like that or just old and, and coming towards the end. Um, so a lot of our language of, you know, you'll oh, you'll be um, you know caught up in the arms of Jesus and dancing with the angels or that was always a favourite yeah. and kind of Pentecostalism, you know, be, uh or, or you'll be looking down on me. Um, you know, a lot of that kind of language, which is, is is trying to grapple with the sense of surely there's something more to this. And surely this is not the end. Um, yeah. And so I've kind of got, we've got those pastoral, um, that pastoral concern in mind, I think, as we have this conversation. And, and that, that that's how a lot of that language functions for people. And yet we actually still need to go through a process of a more robust conversation about these things. So how does that kind of, sort of ambiguity in the New Testament, but yet this hope for at least something real and meaningful, even if we can't say exactly what that is. How does that then intersect with how you think about what this might look like for us also? Yeah. There's lots of implications. I'll maybe touch on a few of them, and then maybe you can throw some in that I've missed, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of them is that... There are several passages of scripture that provide the hope that all creation will be redeemed. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about that, for Mm. instance, in several places. Um, And yet, you and I seem to are going to die. Lots of people have died before. And creation doesn't seem to be redeemed right now. So, um, is there any way that we can experience the redemption of all creation, including the redemption of ourselves, after our bodies die. Mm-hmm. Well, the idea that there's something like an afterlife might mean that we continue to be a part of this grand love adventure uh, inspired by God moment by moment, mm-hmm. and that we can be participating in the fulfillment of all things. We can, to put it in popular language, we can actually experience love winning in its totality. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you know, that's an attractive vision. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I think it's attractive vision to a lot of people. Mm. Um, another thing, uh, is, I guess they're kind of related. Um, there's some people who have habits of destruction and negativity. Um, they are people who seem to be saying no to God's call to love an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And we can pick the worst figures in history if we want to. Sure. Your Adolf Hitler's, your Pol Pot's, whatever. Mm. Um, do those people have any chance of being transformed? 
well, it sure didn't look like they were transformed right the moment before they died. Mm. Um, so do they have another shot? Well, some views of the afterlife, and my view is one of them, is says that, yep, God doesn't give up on them even in the afterlife. And so God doesn't say, you know, to hell with you. God says, I want to continue to call you to a life of love, not force you, but call you. Mm-hmm. And there's the possibility that Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, and all the other rogues are going to eventually cooperate with God and find the kind of redemption God wants all creation. That's another really hopeful vision sure, <laughs> to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I can't prove that's true, yeah. but I tell you, that's very attractive mm. to me. Um, now, there's some views of the afterlife that aren't attractive to me. I mean, I don't, I'm not attracted to the idea that God gives up on some people and sends them to eternal conscious torment mm-hmm. in hell. Just don't think that's a biblical idea. Don't think a loving God would do that. I'm also not attracted to the annihilationist view, which says that uh, God either actively or passively uh, gives up on some and they get, you know, eliminated, annihilated. Uh, To me, that's a God whose love is not really steadfast. Mm. That's a God who says, you know, I gave you 8,972 chances I'm not going to give you 8,973. Mm. Um, I, I, my view of steadfast love is never ending. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's not a very attractive view. Um, it's also, this might sound strange to you and your listeners. It's not very attractive to me to think that God forces everybody into bliss. But there's some Christians who are we sometimes call them universalists who say that because of God's omnipotence or because of the way God created uh, creatures in the first place, at least humans, that eventually everyone will be redeemed, um, even though they don't necessarily play a participating role or they don't have a cooperation in that redemption. And um, that kind of universalism doesn't attract me at all because if God's got the kind of power to make sure everyone ends up in the good place after we die, why doesn't God use that kind of power to make sure things are okay right now? (laughs) (laughs) It's that problem of evil issue. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. yeah. Uh, And also if, if I know with absolute certainty that eventually I and all of creation is going to enjoy eternal bliss, I'm going to be less inclined to be self-sacrificial right now. Mm. Like, why would I give a rip about climate change? I mean, right now I'm making sacrifices in my life that aren't very fun. Mm. Why would I want to do that if I know God can just single-handedly snap God's fingers Mm. and everything and all creation is going to be okay at the end? Um, So maybe the way to summarize that view is it seems like a universalist view that says God forces and Force is maybe too strong, but guarantees everyone in, is in heaven makes my choices now ultimately meaningless. Mm. And um, I have problems with that. So I'm kind of rambling now. Like, no, 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 that's um, good. Uh, so do, <laughs> does the – well, because there are, there are different forms of, of thinking that uh, perhaps have – come under the umbrella of universalism or universalist yes. ways of thinking. Sometimes people would talk about hopeful universalism, for example, where even if we 
don't hold to a controlling God who essentially says, no, this is what's going to happen and I'm going to do it and you'll all be in regardless and I'll do this to the, you know. Um, yeah. If we take that kind of God aside and have this God of who calls us forward a moment by moment into loving possibilities and, and a loving future, um, do you feel that we could still operate with a hope that um, that call ultimately, steadfast as it is, will ultimately transform and redeem all things, you know, uh, and all That's people. my precise right. view. Yeah. That's, I call it the relentless love view. Mm. God relentlessly loves us and invites us to cooperation. There's no guarantee that we're all going to say yes, but because God never gives up, we have the genuine hope. Uh, one of the things, I don't usually use the word hopeful universalism because <laughs> I think it's because one time in my past I had someone use that phrase and I asked them what they meant and they said, well, hopeful universalism means that I'm just hoping God's nice enough that God's going to make sure everyone goes into right. heaven. Sure. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's not my view. I'm, um, I think God is loving enough, mm. but not that it's like I'm just hoping that I've got this loving God out there. Um, so, yeah. The view you just articulated is what I would say is the most plausible, mm -hmm. given all of what I think about God, given what I think about creaturely freedom, given what I think about the real, natural, negative consequences that come from saying no to love in this life and the next. Mm. Uh, wrapping all those kinds of things together, yeah, that kind of hopeful universalism or relentless love seems most plausible. And the... The lives that of those human beings who are experiencing that, whether they've responded to that um, loving call or are still in process uh, of, of responding to that, or still, you know, uh, being invited and lured by God in that space, like after death, post death, um, are you uh, thinking here of human beings who are? somewhere like in one of those two middle, middle categories you talked about in relation to Jesus' resurrection, that you're talking here about either some kind of spiritual body, whatever that means, uh, or some kind of ongoing subjective mind-type experience. Is, is, is that where you're sitting? I am. On that? Yeah. And, and I'm not limiting it just to humans either. I'm, right. I'm open to other creatures. Mm -hmm. It's even stronger than open. I expect there to be many, many creatures. I think other creatures have something like mine. So um, I have no problem believing they also continue uh, experiencing beyond the death of whatever body they have. Okay, so let's think about that issue from a, from a humanness perspective for a moment. Uh, yeah. Given what we now know about, and of course these things are always contested, and human consciousness itself is a highly contested conversation yeah. and, and an idea, right? <laughs> Uh, because we do know that at least to some degree uh, it is our it is our brains and our neural pathways and the brain-body system and how those things work together that help to construct and form and shape and con constitute what we come to know as our mind. You know, so if I... I have a particular personality, but if I have damage to a particular part of my brain, my personality can, can change. I can become angry right. or irrational or, you know. So, so clearly... The brain-body system itself is is important and influential in in terms of what we understand of mind. Given that that's the case, how do we plausibly conceive of some kind of 
post-death subjective experience that incorporates what we call our, our mind. How do you make sense of that? Yeah. So here we're getting to the question of what philosophers call the mind-body problem. Mm. And there are, I think, probably safe to say something like four major options on the table. One option says there's no such thing as a mind, that we are physical, top to bottom. We have brains that are physical. And what we call a self that is a mind is nothing more than the, the language would be epiphenomenal. It's, it doesn't have any ontology. It doesn't have any being. It isn't a thing. It's uh, just a kind of an expression. Like uh, the wetness of water is not a, a being. It's quite sort of a characteristic of all those H2O things working together. Right. So, so would that's, that be like the, the essentially the neural pathways uh, are the thing and we essentially just mind as the, as the epiphenomenon of, of that network yes. of pathways. Right. Sometimes called materialism or mm-hmm. physicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that view. Another view, which is less popular now but was really popular 100 years ago, says that we are minds and are what constitutes our bodies are ideas and minds and reality ex- uh, consists of ideas and minds. So someone like, uh, uh, oh, well, today Keith Ward has this view. It's called idealism. Okay. But uh, Immanuel Kant had the, a version of this. Um, you know, it's not as popular today, but it used to be the going philosophical alternative. Okay. Um, Third, and this is especially common amongst Christian thinkers and philosophers, is what we call Cartesian mind-body dualism. And it says that our bodies and our brains are entirely physical. We have a mind that's entirely mental. And in some mysterious way, those two interact. But no one really knows how that works. Mm-hmm. There's proposals on the table, and no one really finds them that plausible. Okay. Uh, but the advantage of that view is that you've got a mind, a self that's influencing the body and the body's influencing that mind. Uh, and so it kind of fits with the way we think of our experience, at least a lot of our experience. It's just it has a conceptual problem of having an entirely mental mind and an entirely physical body and you're trying to figure out how do those mm-hmm. two go together. Fourth option, and this is the one I like, goes by several names. Some people call it panpsychism. Other people call it panexperientialism or dipolar monism. My phrase is this, material mental monism. And it says that our bodies and our mind have both a mental and a physical aspect. And so there is no conceptual problem of how a mind can interact with a brain and interact with other, the rest of the body because they're of the same kind of being. They're being with a physical and mental dimension. Um, and, but, you know, the cells on our toes have physical and mental dimension, just not consciousness uh, or something like that. Right. So the upside of that view is that you overcome the problem, what they call the mind-body problem. But we get some upsides, too, when we think about life after death. Because one of the worries even some Christians have with mind-body dualism is that it says our minds are really the only thing that matters. And Mm. this world and these bodies are, you know, they're all going to die anyway. So who really gives a rip? 
you might care for creation because God demands it, but there's no intrinsic uh, value to creation. Mm. And so you're more likely not to give a rip about the world or your body because your mind's the only thing that matters. Well, in this scenario, if your mind has both a mental and physical aspect and creation, the elements of creation do, as well as your body, then all of a sudden you have a real reason to care for the way you interact with the world and whatever it is that continues on beyond the death of your body in terms of your mind, it isn't just purely mental. It has a physical dimension too. So um, that overcomes at least a conceptual obstacle for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it presents some other interesting questions like uh, how does that mind that interact with others in the afterlife? And I think there's some ways to talk about that. But um, I find that a more promising way to talk about life after death. Okay, so if, if, um, if we think about everything actually is having some kind of physical and mental aspect to its reality, um, is, that, is that mental aspect itself um, inextricably linked, connected to the physicality? Um, is it something that exists uh, in another sort of dimension of reality from the three-dimensional physical reality? How do we understand the nature of that that physical and mental dimension of, uh, of things? It, it would be more like the former of those two options you mm-hmm. said. Everything that exists, every cell, every amoeba, every mouse, every elephant, every human has is comprised of entities or um, uh, entities, what's another synonym for that, is comprised of elements <laughs> mm-hmm. with both a physical and mental dimension. Now, again, when I say mental, I don't mean that cells are like pondering Einstein's theories or something <laughs> like that. Um, I mean, they may, they have some kind of responsiveness to the environment, which is the way we talk about cells all the time, the mm-hmm. way physicians do, uh, but they're not like machines. They're not like... Uh, little bits of matter bouncing off one another with uh, no responsiveness at all. So the idea would be that the more these entities form into societies and become more complex, the greater responsiveness they have so that a quark has much less responsiveness than a cell and a cell has much less responsiveness than a mouse. And a mouse has, is, I don't think I, mice might be conscious, but I'm pretty sure humans are conscious. Mm. Um, and so there's these gradations of, um, of um, complexity in the emergence of greater and greater expressions of mentality. And do you think that the kind of um, the, the exploration even of, I don't know if this is, I'm sure this is something you'll have thought about, uh, quantum, you know, <laughs> quantum mechanics and quantum, and quantum entanglements and, the, and yes. the, uh, not that I'm an expert in those things, but the the realization that the sort of deeper we dig into reality as we know it, even material reality, yes. we find not machine or um, static reality, but dynamic, responsive, fluid, um, yes. unpredictable actually at times, or often, uh, if not always. It's a very standard way of talking about quantum theory. Very right. standard. Yeah. The question It's not standard to say that, that quarks have mentality. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a philosophical guess 
that most physicists aren't going to be talking about. Yeah. But that there's indeterminacy, unpredictability at the quantum level, very standard way of thinking about um, what's happening there. And so as you think about um, something like panpsychism, if we use that label, um, okay. do you think it is – obviously you think it's plausible because it's your it's your, your preferred yeah. <laughs> of the ones we're talking about. Is is that plausible to you? I mean, it's obviously – it's a it's a – philosophical estimation or guess or attempt to understand reality as it's experienced. Right. Um, but on what grounds, I suppose, do you feel, yeah, that's that's actually a, a plausible way of understanding reality as we now understand it? Yeah, well, you know, the way I think about it is I start with my own experience. And my own experience says I've got, I'm making mental decisions and it seems like this body and this brain that I have has physical dimensions. So it seems like given my own moment-by-moment moment experience and the relation I seem to have to my body, panpsychism makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Then I look over at Michael, and Michael seems to be acting in ways that like I act when I'm having mental experiences. And I think, oh, well, other humans must have something like this too. Then I look at my dog and I think, you know, my dog has something like that. Not to the same degree that Michael and I do, but there seems to be some real responsiveness to the environment. Sometimes he, you know, poops on my rug and comes to me ashamed and, you know, all these kinds of weird things going on. I start looking at mice and see the experiments they're doing. They seem to have this kind of responsiveness. Then I start getting smaller and smaller and I talk to physicians and scientists who talk about viruses mutating and responding to their environments. And pretty soon I'm thinking to myself, man, this responsiveness, again, not consciousness, but responsiveness goes pretty far down the Mm -hmm. chain of complexity. Now I look at what seems to be happening at the quantum level. And um, it's harder for me to say there's responsiveness there. I got to admit. Mm -hmm. Now there is indeterminacy. But, you know, maybe these are just chance events that don't have any kind of internal, intrinsic, internal uh, mentality going mm. on. And, and there's uh, so much regularity in the world at the smallest levels. You know, you and I are communicating with each other via computers. And these computers, they, they screw up sometimes. But, man, they're pretty reliable. Mm. The way they're put together, you know, there's there's not um, – there's not um, – um, chance events happening all over the place that make this impossible for us to have this conversation. My computer's not spontaneously dissolving into a, into <laughs> right. a, into a mouse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So given that consistency, mm. that regularity at the smallest levels, it's harder to think of panpsychism applying there. Mm. I do for philosophical reasons – because the alternative seems to be that somehow mentality would have emerged in evolutionary history from something that had absolutely no mental capacities that was less complex. So, you know, the question would be, how is it that mice have mentality when corks don't Mm. or their cells don't or whatever? So it's more of a philosophical move to speculate that at the quantum level, there's something like mentality. Um, And I do that for, yeah, philosophical reasons. But I, I like to point out that people who don't do that, who say that the quarks have no mentality, 
Well, they don't have any idea about that either. I mean, sure. they're making a speculative guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're all speculating yeah. here. I have the beauty of having a more coherent uh, speculative system than mm. other people do. Mm. Um, so, and that um, either the the very materialist evolutionary perspective or the more interventionist religious perspective, where um, God just happened to to put a soul in human beings and just didn't yeah. put one in anything else. And so my dog might look ashamed, but really it's just a, it's a, um, it's a soulless creature compared to me, the, yeah. the one with the soul. Uh, this view does uh, embrace more continuity, even as there's distinction, but more continuity and, and relationality, we could say, um, with, with more dimensions of, of creation as we understand it or of, of the world that we inhabit. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it, it, it matters when we think, for instance, about morality. There's lots of things that have been done by ch with chimps and dolphins and dogs and others, uh, wolves especially, that suggest they have something like a moral code, mm. or something like loyalty, something like expectations for what's good and, and bad. Um, and so, you know, I like to say it's quite plausible that all dogs are go to heaven except my own because my own <laughs> I know has has sinned way too much. <laughs> uh, no, but um, yeah. So there's more of a con continuous view of mm. of uh, reality rather than these sharp, like you said. Well, God's chucking along through evolutionary process, creating more and more complex beings and gets to the orangutans and the chimpanzees and, the, and, and bonobos and says, well, you know, this next jump to the humans, I think they're the ones who's going to get a soul and morality and values. Yeah, it's, it's just hard for, mm. hard for me and many others to affirm given the kinds of things we see happening in other creatures. Okay, so um, as we've been exploring these fascinating ideas um how yeah. do we then let's let's circle back around to the life after death conversation where we kind okay. of launched off here um this way of of thinking about um all of reality actually and and then including us as humans how does that help us to make sense of some kind of post-death subjective experience here if yeah. there's a mentality and a physicality to to me in the in the present mm -hmm. if my body dies how does some kind of ongoing subjective with physicality and mentality still to it of me? How does, how can you conceive of any way of that continuing? I know we're, we're sort of, we're digging for details where we're always, there's, there's ambiguity here that we can't get around. Yeah. But, but do you have a way it's of gonna, thinking about that? I've got some evidence for you. How's that? Oh, okay. Good. Good. Near death experiences. Okay. Out of body experiences purported communication with other minds. These are the wild, wacky parapsychology stuff that a lot of people just don't take seriously unless they themselves have experienced it. Mm -hmm. Current research says somewhere between 5 and 10% of all humans on this planet have an out-of-body experience before they die, before they officially <laughs> die. Okay. Many of those are near-death experiences. So instances in which people feel 
see their bodies as they float away from them or go down the tunnel toward the light or all these kinds of things. Then they're revived, their heart starts beating again, and they feel themselves going back into their bodies. Or there are cases in which, for instance, Buddhist monks have talked about having their mind go outside and somehow perceive their bodies from outside. There's lots of wild and wacky things. I've been a part of, um, uh, I've, been, I've taught in African cultures, and uh, people there are quite convinced that they receive messages from the ancestors, mm. and they have to figure out what those messages are. In fact, talk about life after death, a lot of cultures believe there are particular sites in which they can go to have conversation or things like this. Um, today, a lot of people don't take this stuff seriously. A hundred years ago, the prominent philosophers of the day were all into this. Mm. William James was into this. Um, uh, Alfred North Whitehead. Uh, I mean, this idea that you had conversations with people who have died but still are somehow able to communicate or that you yourself had a near-death experience and you went out of your body and returned, those were just very common ideas. They don't, in my mind, prove life after death. Mm -hmm. But if we're really going to be empirical, if we're really going to take seriously the evidence we have before us, we have to take seriously this. Perhaps there are good e explanations for it that we can explain them away in some way, but we've got to give those explanations rather than just ignoring the evidence. Mm. Add that to the billions and billions of people today and in the past who thought some kind of life after death experience was possible through reincarnation or going to Sheol or whatever. Um, there's quite a bit of reason to take these ideas seriously, even if we can't prove them to be true. In some respects, that reminds me even of our of our discussion about whether there is a God or not. Right? It's a similar yeah. kind of conversation in the sense that many people speak of a sense of responsiveness, a sense of moreness, of otherness that they experience or encounter in their lives. And yet we can't sit down and, and do the maths uh, and, <laughs> and and calculate that and figure it out. Um, and yet the testimonies of that kind of experience are so widespread that it's yes. it doesn't prove anything, but it is no. it is a philosophical opposition to that idea that usually denies its plausibility as opposed to a um, a decision based on the empirical evidence of of people's experiences. Yep. So it's, it seems like there's a similarity there. Even interestingly, I was thinking as you're talking, there's these odd bits in the Bible, right? Which, which if, um, if I think about my own kind of earlier Christian life, uh, these would, I never knew what to do with these bits because these bits always sounded like the kinds of things that, that bad witchy type people did. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus has this, um, and, and again, it could be a, a symbolic metaphorical story. We don't really know. Um, but the, the transfiguration story where he, he appears right. on the mountain talking with, with Moses and Elijah, you know, is that, a, is that a metaphor or is that real? I don't know. But it, they certainly, you know, Peter's like, oh, maybe I should make a little tent for you all. You know, does everyone want somewhere to sleep? Uh, which is a, it, I, it's funny. It's a funny story. But also um, curious 
Um, and then, and then even I think in the Old Testament, when uh, is it Saul who who wants to chat to Samuel? He does actually find kind of a a, a right. medium of some kind. Medium, but that's right. The story says yes, the medium was a bad thing to do, but it doesn't say that he wasn't talking to Samuel. Um, right. It just says that that he shouldn't have been doing it through those means. And again, that doesn't prove anything, but it does say that there is some there are some elements within the biblical story itself that open us up to these kinds of possibilities and ways that yeah, I think the West, in the West is, we haven't necessarily wrestled with particularly well. Right, yeah. Uh, another one, a good one, is the Hebrews passage about it, the cloud of witnesses. Mm. Um, I didn't really, I'm like you, I kind of knew a little bit about these things but didn't take them very seriously until I was in Kenya mm. and I was teaching some graduate students and uh, they came to me with a big question because Unfortunately, Africans think that people in the West have all the answers, but <laughs> we don't. But they, so they thought I had the answer to their question. It was this. They said, we have these people in our congregations who have these dreams. And in these dreams, the ancestors tell them certain things to do certain things. And they're not sure whether or not they should do them. They should take them seriously. And so they're going to the... Um, the uh, shaman, you know, we call them witch doctors when I was a kid, but that's not the correct name. But you know what I mean, mm. the people who can interpret these. And uh, these these pastors were asking me, you know, what do we do about this? And I said, well, you know, why do you think this is real? Well, then they start checking out all these biblical stories that they know right. that correspond with this idea. And I'm thinking, whoa, you're right. <laughs> Hadn't quite thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a reality <laughs> for many people on, on the planet. They take this stuff much more seriously. Um, yeah, if you talk to like Māori in New Zealand, for example, so indigenous people in New Zealand, you start talking about cloud of witnesses and ancestors and they're like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and they don't take it as a, metaphor you know right uh, whereas, whereas my temptation is like well hang on i don't know what to do with that must be a metaphor uh yeah and and so i think you know that again none of these none of this proves anything in particular as much as to say we all have our kind of philosophical presumptions that we're operating with and those may yes. or may not be correct and i think that's right in in kind of the western modern slash postmodern world we have absorbed some of those presumptions to the degree to which we find it um, very, very difficult to conceive of the plausibility of certain things. That's right. Um, but actually that's just because of the presumptions we've made rather than them being provable or not at, at, right. a, at yep. a base level. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, if we Okay, if we think about uh, all of this, I, I don't think we're um, – I don't think we're <laughs> boiling it down to, to uh, <laughs> exactly – perfect figured out answers which is great because yeah. there's no way you could possibly do that but let's say uh, we think about some kind of post-death subjective experience that includes some kind of mentality and physicality whatever we mean by that um, yeah. where do you think that is then yeah well I don't know let me start uh, that up <laughs> I don't know where it is <laughs> I have I have grave doubts that there's pearly gates and streets of gold mm -hmm. somewhere in the universe. I have great doubts about that. I, I suspect that this release from a body that is oftentimes uh, pain, it gives us lots of pain. This release mm -hmm. from a body 
we're not necessarily flying off to Mars. I suspect we're somewhere around the Earth. Mm. Um, this would help to account for these messages with ancestors mm. and these other kinds of things. Um, it actually, and this is getting really wild here for a minute, <laughs> it also might help us to account for what many people call demons. Right. Um, instead of these being angelic beings that fell from heaven long ago, maybe the demons as ontological beings are the negative influences of those who have gone. Um, and those influences being, you know, in, um, in our minds and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not saying that has to be the way it is, but that would be one way to explain the demonic without dismissing it as symbolic. Um, so what does it all mean? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do believe in life after death, but somehow someone proved to me that we don't have continued subjective experience beyond the death of the body. I'd still believe in God. I'd still try to follow Jesus. I'd still live a life of love. Mm -hmm. But the bonuses of believing in life after death are there that I mentioned already. Mm -hmm. The possibility that those who aren't trying to leave a life of love might be eventually transformed, Mm -hmm. that eventually love would win and I could participate in that in some way. Um, Those things are attractive to me. yeah. Yeah. That those who, you know, spend their entire life, they're born and die in a refugee camp somewhere in horrendous conditions might actually get to experience something. Another one. Yes. Of, of, of love. Not saying they haven't yes. experienced love within those conditions, but that they might experience something more liberating than that experience. Itself. Yes. I would say they are liberated from bodies in conditions that have brought them great pain. Mm. And I'm not anti-body, I'm not anti-material, I'm not anti-physical, but the reality is that some people just have lives filled with pain. Mm. And I was speaking at a, a university, I guess it was been three years ago, and I was actually giving a lecture on They invited me to come in and talk about the afterlife. <laughs> so I was giving a lecture on it, and uh, the majority of my lecture was laying out my relentless love view that I've since published in a couple of books. And after it's over, this woman came up to me and she said, oh, thank you so much for saying that after we die, God doesn't give up on us, that God continues to invite us. She said, uh, my son suffered from, uh, she said, a chemical imbalance in his brain, mm-hmm. how she described it, but mental disability, we'll just call it that. And he was depressed most of his life. And eventually, at, I think she said at age 21, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. She said, yours is a view of the afterlife that gives me hope that my son doesn't have to deal with the bodily pain, the depression, the chemical imbalance, and can say yes. Because when he was alive, he couldn't believe in any God who would Mm. allow this crap to happen to him. (laughs) But now in an afterlife, when he doesn't have this body, and assuming there is a God who is inviting him to loving existence, he has another chance to say yes, or many chances to say yes to God. So it's a hopeful vision, I think, mm. as well as one that paints a portrait of God as consistently, everlastingly, relentlessly loving. Mm. That's beautiful. I think that's a good place to finish. Okay, yeah, great. That's nice. 
Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate traversing all of this territory with you into the paranormal. Uh, (laughs) We've gone everywhere there, which has been brilliant, (laughs) fantastic. And uh, and I think helps us to honestly wrestle with some of these things rather than what's the right answer we're supposed to give because we're in this faith tradition or I don't know if I can believe that anymore and so the whole thing's a bit you know, right. throw it throw it out the window. Instead, this kind of honest uh, engagement with some humility and the embrace of ambiguity, I think is I think is the way to go. I think a lot of humility. I don't I don't want to come across as having this all figured out. Yeah. Even though there's a view that I find most attractive, I don't know with mm. certainty that it's the right view. But you know, when you think about it, there's very little we know of certainty. Mm. So uh, maybe we ought to build the best cases we can, given the experiences we have with the world and the experiences that other people seem to have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll, we'll see yeah, if we, you pleasure. know, at some stage we go for a fourfold, uh, fourfold appearance in the future. Oh, I would be my honor. I'd <laughs> love to do that. <laughs> Thanks very much. So there you have it, my conversation with Tom. I'm sure you'll agree. We covered some wide ground there, some really fascinating and curious ideas, and I hope you found that interesting and even helpful in your own journey of wrestling through what it is that you might think about some of this. As always, thanks to Reese Michel for his audiological manipulation of this experience for your ears, uh, and I'll see you next time on In The Shift.